Welcome to Oakden Baptist Church and our sermon series, Touching the Untouchable, Approaching God. For more resources or information on the life of OBC, please go to our website at www.oaktonbaptist.org.au, check out our Facebook page or download our app. Worship. It is a word that we use all the time in the church. We talk about contemporary worship, traditional worship, and even seeker-sensitive worship. We speak about worship teams, worship leaders, and hold worship conferences. We even choose churches on the basis of worship. And typically what we mean is the musical style that is our preference. But in all our talk about worship, are we missing the most important fact about worship? A.W. Tozer, a Christian author in the 50s, wrote these words. He said, Christian churches have come close to the dangerous time predicted long ago. It is a time when we can pat one another on the back, congratulate ourselves, and join in the glad refrain, we are rich and increased with goods and need of nothing. Tozer goes on to write, it is certainly is true that hardly anything is missing from our churches these days. Except the most important thing, we are missing the genuine and sacred offering of ourselves and our worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Tozer penned these words almost 50 years ago, but I think that they're still true today. We are hardly missing anything from our churches, but we may be missing the most important thing. What is the most important fact about worship? Well, let me give you a hint. It's not about style or order of service or if you use a praise band or an organ or just a guitar. The most important thing about worship is whether God is pleased with our worship. He is the audience of our worship. At Oakton, our vision is to help people experience real life in Christ as we gather to exalt Jesus, as we grow to become like Jesus, as we give and serve Jesus, and as we go out of this place on fire to share Jesus. In particular, our gather vision is this. We see a church of multiple corporate worship gatherings where our triune God is passionately exalted and his word powerfully preached. So the church that we see is a church of worshippers, A church of people who are passionately exalting the triune God. But the question comes, what is worship? And what is required from people who come to God in worship? How can we touch the untouchable God? How should we approach this God who is holy in worship? Well, in order to answer those questions, we're beginning a new series today entitled Touching the Untouchable, Approaching God. And we're going to be studying through a section of the book of the Bible that is all about worship. It's a book of the Bible that from the beginning to the ending is about worship. And it's probably a book that you haven't read for a while. Maybe you've never read it. We're going to be studying through the first seven chapters of this book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus has been described by some people as the Bermuda Triangle of the Bible, It is only the third book in the Bible, and when people determine that this year they're going to read through the Bible in one year, they typically get lost in Leviticus. It's a book full of ceremonial laws and strange sacrifices and purity codes. 
It is a book that seems so distant from our experience. And therefore, I think it's one of the most undervalued and underread books in the Bible. However, I think that we will never grasp the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf unless we understand the book of Leviticus. Further, I think that we can never understand the holiness of God and how this holy God desires to be worshipped unless we get in to the book of Leviticus. In fact, maybe part of the reason that there is such a poverty of true worship. I'm talking about true, awe-filled, on-your-face-before-God style of worship is because the pages of Leviticus may be stuck together in our Bibles. So buckle up. I think it's going to be one amazing journey as we study together this underrated book of the Bible. Now, I recognize that for many people here today, you don't have a church background. Or even if you do have a church background, you've got all these fuzzy stories in your brain of things that you learned in Sunday school, and you don't know how they all go together. Like Naaman and Paul and Jesus and like, you know, David and Goliath and where do these all fit? So I think in order to get us up to speed of where we are up to in the story, I would just start from the beginning. As I said, this is three books in. In the book of Genesis, God speaks the world into motion. He, he, he speaks and everything comes into being. And the pinnacle of his creation is humanity who are created in his image. They are created to relate to God, to worship God and to rule over all of creation. And God sets them up in a garden, Adam and Eve, and he gives them one commandment. He says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the whole world is plunged into darkness. Everything becomes broken. The world is ruled over by sin. People are broken. Relationships are broken. Creation is broken. And from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, it's a sad story of the brokenness of humanity. But in Genesis chapter 12, we see a light shining on this dark horizon. God comes to Abraham. And he promises Abraham that he is going to make him into a great nation, that he is going to give him a land. And through one of his descendants, all of the families on earth are going to be blessed. And Abraham believes God and it's accredited to him as righteousness. Well, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And the promise continues through Isaac. Isaac then grows up and he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And the promise continues through Jacob. And then great Jacob grows up and God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. God changes his name to Israel and he has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they become prosperous and they become numerous in number. And they move down to Egypt to get away from a famine. And the end, and the end narrative in, in the book of Genesis finishes with Israel down in Egypt to get away from a famine. But then Exodus opens, the book of Exodus. 
and there are a Pharaoh arises who didn't, who didn't know Joseph. And he starts to enslave the people of God. And the people of God call out to, to Yahweh for mercy, call out to him and reminding him of their covenant promises. And God sends a deliverer, Moses. And Moses comes and he performs the wonders of God and he leads God's people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And they come to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the God who speaks, who spoke the world into existence, he speaks the nation of Israel into existence. He gives them his law and he adopts them as his people. And they now become his own possession, people of his own possession. And so we are right there at Sinai. That is where Leviticus opens, at Sinai. And here's the issue that Leviticus is seeking to address. How can sinful humans be in contact with this God who is holy, holy, holy? With this God on a mountain who when he's on top of the mountain, the mountain shakes with his holiness. How can man who is sinful have relationship with a God who is holy? And the book of Leviticus gives us the answer in three ways. It says, through sacrifice, through a priesthood, a consecrated priesthood, and through purity, through ritual purity, through sacrifice, through priesthood, through purity. And the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, we see the sacrifices being spelt out. In chapter one, we see the burnt offering. In chapter two, we see the grain offering. In chapter three, we see the peace offering. In chapters four and five, we see the sin offering. In chapters five to seven, we see the guilt offering. And over the next five weeks, what we're going to be doing, what we're going to be studying as a church together, bring your Bibles, bring your pens, mark your Bibles, write notes. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be feasting on this passage because every page Every page of the Bible shows us the greatness and glory of Jesus. And in these sacrifices, we are going to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus displayed. And we are going to see what it means to touch the untouchable God. Now, the first of these offerings is the burnt offering. Now, in the burnt offering that we're going to be studying in Leviticus chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, just open it up to Leviticus chapter 1. Um, the first lesson that we learn is a very, very important lesson about worship. So we're going to be looking at the burnt offering. And from the burnt offering, we learn the most fundamental lesson about worship. Here is the most fundamental lesson about worship. Worship requires total commitment. You got that? The most fundamental lesson about worship. Worship requires Total commitment. Turn to the person next to you and say, worship requires total commitment. Now we see this commitment expressed in the burnt offering in that it had to be the proper gift offered at the proper place with the proper presentation. Let me say that again. Authentic worship requires total commitment And this commitment was seen in the burnt offering in that it had to be 
the proper gift offered in the proper place with the proper presentation. First, it had to be the proper gift. Now, you often ask the question, we're, you know, my kids often ask me, what do you want for Christmas, Dad? And, you know, you probably ask other people what they want for Christmas. And it's very easy to buy gifts for your kids for Christmas because they always have a list. I know Bella, she's always, she's always got a list of things that she wants for Christmas. In fact, every time, all, all the time, she's changing and putting more things on that list. But Tegan will say to me that, you know, Timon, you're the most difficult to buy for. We can never buy you the proper gift. Well, I think for the Israelites, they, must have, they would have wondered, what is the proper gift to bring to the Lord? Well, the Lord gives the Israelites specific instructions as to what the proper gift was. Look down in verse 1 of Leviticus. We read this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So it was to be from one of those two places, from the herd or from the flock. Now look down in verses 3 to verse 9, you'll just see that in those verses, uh, Moses speaks about a burnt offering from the herd, a burnt offering of, of a bull and what that involves. And then in verses 10 to verse 13, you'll just notice that it, it's a burnt offering from the flock, uh, either a, a sheep or a goat. But it's very interesting, look down in verse 14 to verse 17, what we see there is also what would be acceptable, is not just a burnt offering from the herd or from the flock, but you could also offer a bird, either a turtle dove or a pigeon. Now you might wonder, why such a diversity of gift when it comes to burnt offering? Well, this variety in animals showed that while God always required a sacrifice of value from the worshipper, he was not unreasonable. He knew that for a poor Israelite, all they could afford was a bird. And so even though he wanted everyone to bring something of value, he did not put worship out of the realm of every person in the community. Every person in the community was required to worship regardless of their economic status. Needless to say, it was still to be a costly sacrifice. David said in 2 Samuel 24 verse 24, he said this, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. You know, my dad used to say to me, Timon, If your faith costs you nothing, it is worth nothing. How much does your worship cost you? I wonder. Does it cost you anything to worship the Lord your God? So this was to be, the proper gift was to be a costly gift. Now we don't understand this so much in our culture because we have meat all the time. We love meat. I love meat. I have meat at least Four times a week. I would have it every night of the week if I could afford it because I love meat so much. But for the Israel, who's with me on that? Amen. All right. Some of you aren't. You're vegetarians. Repent. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> meat. But you see, for the Israelites, this was, this was, this was different. In their culture at their time, people didn't have meat 
unless it was a real special occasion, unless it was a, a family gathering or some sort of, of wedding or something like that. And so to have your bull or to offer your goat or your sheep and to have it completely, get this, completely burnt up on the altar was a costly sacrifice. Worship requires commitment. It requires the the proper gift, a costly sacrifice. But it wasn't just a costly sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Look down in verse 3 in your Bibles. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Now, you might be wondering, what's the deal with the male? Why did it have to be a male? Well, this was not a chauvinistic thing. I mean, quite practically, females were actually better than males because they produced milk and could reproduce. But rather, in that culture at that time, the the male was seen as like the chieftain of the herd. Um, You know, growing up on my farm, uh, we used to have this big bull called Victor, Victor the bull. And I was really scared of Victor. He had this big, he was a big Brahmin bull with a big hump, had a big V on his forehead, Victor the bull. And, uh, and, but Victor, you know, he used to prance around like the head of the herd. And it was sort of like he was the head of the herd because basically all of the herd came from his loins. So he was basically the head of the herd. So in requiring it to be a male, the Lord was requiring an act of total commitment. I want, I want total commitment from you. But it was also to be without blemish. Now, this without blemish, you know, it's, it's not that the Lord was being unreasonable or, or, or arrogant in requiring an animal without blemish. But rather, in that culture and that time, if you, uh, animals that were deformed in some, in some way were less valuable than animals that weren't. And so what the Lord was saying, I want you to give me a gift that is worthy of who I am. I am worthy of your very, very best. And it's still true today. God is worthy of your best. You know, would you, parents, would you give your kids a broken toy if you could afford to give them a brand new one? No, you wouldn't. Or if you invited, like, you know, Tony Abbott to lunch, would you give him a Vegemite sandwich? No, you would, you would buy a beautiful pizza from Lakeside Cafe. Maybe, you know, depending on your political allegiances. But this is what the Lord is saying. You need to give me a perfect gift, a gift that is worthy of who I am. A male without blemish. So true worship requires total commitment. It requires the proper gift, a costly gift, a perfect gift. Now, isn't it amazing that God, our Father, in sending the Lord Jesus, he sent the proper gift. Jesus was a costly gift. Romans 8 verse 32 says that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. Jesus on the cross was crushed for us. It was like his life was burnt up for us. He was a perfect gift. He was the spotless lamb of God, John says, who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so true worship involves 
the proper gift. But it also needs to be offered at the proper place. You know, you couldn't just bring your animal and just make a fire and just offer a burnt offering anywhere. You needed to bring it to the proper place. Look down in your Bibles in verse 3. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the tent entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, the tent of meeting was the tabernacle. We read about it in the book of Exodus that God uh, told the Israelites to construct this tabernacle and then they constructed it. And in the very last paragraph of the book of Exodus, we read about the Shekinah glory of God coming down and inhabiting the tabernacle. It was the place where God dwelt among his people. Now, the tabernacle was supposed to be right at the center of Israel's life. The tabernacle was supposed to be the the Ark of the Covenant would lead out the people of Israel. And when they would encamp, they would set up the tabernacle right at the center of the camp. And this was to show, to demonstrate them, uh, to demonstrate to them a very important theological point. It was to demonstrate to them that the reason that they are distinct is because God is present among them. It's because the living God dwells with them. You know, Christian, the thing that makes us distinct is that we are inhabited by the living God. The thing that should make the church of God distinct is that God is present, that he is at work, that he is the one who is changing people's lives, converting people from darkness, that God is present among his people. Now, here is a picture of the tabernacle. You see on this diagram, what you have is you have the entrance gate there, and then you have the outer courtyard. You have, first, as you would come in, you see the altar of burnt offerings, then the bronze lavia. Then you would have this tent in the, in the center of the tabernacle, and it was divided into two parts. The holy place which had the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden lampstand in it. And then the most holy place, the holy of holies, where you would have the Ark of the Covenant. The layperson was only permitted to come into the outer courtyard for the purpose of presenting their gift to the Lord. Only the approved priests could enter the sacred tent. And in bringing the offering to the tent of meeting, there could be no confusion as to who this was being presented to. This was not being presented to a foreign God. This was being presented to the God of Israel. So authentic worship requires commitment. It requires the proper gift given at the proper place. The Israelites were to make effort to come and bring their offering to the tent of meeting And that demonstrated their commitment and their faith in the Lord. Now you could see from this diagram that as soon as you came in the entrance, the very first thing that you would see would be the altar. Next to the tent itself, it was the most dominating structure. Now this communicated a very important theological message. You see, since the altar came first into view upon entrance into the courtyard, it reminded the worshiper that God required sacrifice. It reminded the worshiper that he is holy. And to enter into his presence, you need to be cleansed from your sins through sacrifice. 
And the sight of the altar would have produced these conflicting emotions in the worshipper. They would have been filled with sorrow because the altar was a place of death. The burnt offering was offered daily, every morning, every evening. In Exodus 29, 39, we read this. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And down in verse 42 of the same chapter, we read, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout all your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So this was not some squeaky clean you know, pristine altar. This was covered with smoldering animal sacrifice. It was a place of death. It was bloody. And coming into the tent, you would have been confronted with death. You would have been confronted emotionally and viscerally with this reality. However, the altar was also a place of great joy. For this sacrifice enabled relationship with the God who had redeemed you. Listen to the psalmist and his joy at coming to the altar. In Psalm 43 verse 3, we read this. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. So the altar would have produced these conflicting emotions in the worshipper. On the one hand, it would have produced sorrow because it was a place of death. But on the other hand, joy because through sacrifice, I get to come back into relationship to the God who's redeemed me. You know, this is like the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I think about the cross... And I think about all the suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. I find in my heart conflicting emotions. I find in my heart deep sorrow at what Jesus went through. You know, we've tended to sanitize the cross. Even our wooden cross here in our worship sanctuary is pretty sanitized. We wear the cross around our necks as a symbol. But the cross was a symbol of death. It was a bloody cross. Jesus went through excruciating pain on the cross. But when I think about the cross, not only am I filled with sorrow, but I'm also filled with joy. I'm so thankful for what Jesus did for me on the cross. So the cross at the same time, it attracts me and repels me. Do you guys find that? I'm filled with sorrow and yet I'm filled with joy. I see the justice of God. I see the love of God all on the cross. My grandmother used to sing me this hymn that I think expresses it well. She used to sing this hymn to me. She used to sing, Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it on dark Calvary. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Oh Lord, help us lay down those things. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. 
The cross was the place where Jesus offered himself on our behalf. True worship involves the proper gift at the proper place. And at the cross, just as at the altar, Jesus offered himself for the sins of humanity. The proper gift at the proper place. Finally, with the proper presentation. You see, if the sacrifice was to be accepted by God, then it needed to be offered in the proper way. The Lord required strict observance to show the importance of approaching him. Look down in verse 4. We read this. He, that is the worshiper, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This act of laying your hand on the head of the bull was a symbol of saying, I'm identifying with you. You are my substitute. You are dying in my place for my sin. Now look down in verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall fillet the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. Now, did you notice that the worshipper was directly involved in the presentation? Who was the one who killed the bull? It was not the priest, but the worshiper. As it said in verse 5, it was done before the Lord. Now the same is true for the sheep and goats down in verse 11. The only difference is the place where the sacrifice was killed. The birds were a little bit different, but we can see that the the worshiper was directly involved in the presentation of the sacrifice. They put their hands on the heads of the sacrifice and they were the ones who killed it and cut it into pieces. Now listen up. Kenneth Matthews writes this in his commentary and it's very significant. He says, by carrying out this procedure, the Israelites identified closely with the innocent victim. The blood of the animal would have gushed from the neck spattering the worshipper. The sounds, smells, and blood would have indelibly marked the memory of the Israelites' worship of God. The person's transgressions had cost the life of another creature. Last year, Pastor Paul came into my office, as he often does, with the word of God open saying, look at this, look at, he was studying the book of Leviticus because that was where we were up to in our Bible reading plan at the time. He's like, look at this. He said, for the Israelite worshiper, they had to take a bull to the tent of meeting. They had to slay that bull. They would have recognized how serious sin was. It would have been a reminder to them that sin is serious And sin deserves death. But do you know what, brothers and sisters in Christ? We were not redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Peter exhorts the church to holiness. He says, we need to be holy like God is holy. And then he says this, for we were not redeemed by silver and gold, but we were redeemed by the blood of the precious lamb of God. We should remind ourselves that those sinful acts that we are harboring in our heart, those things that you're keeping from everyone, they cost Jesus' blood. That's what it cost. And that should motivate us towards holiness before God. The proper gift at the proper place with the proper presentation. Now, when they did this, they were assured of what it says in verse 9. Look down in verse 9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Now, this concept of it being a pleasant aroma to the Lord, it's, this is just a figure of speech. It's not like the Lord has nostrils, okay? God is spirit and he doesn't have nostrils. But what this is speaking about is that when the gift, the proper gift, was offered at the proper place with the proper presentation before the Lord, then the Lord was pleased with that. His just anger against sin was satisfied. And that worshiper could go with the confidence that they had been forgiven and were accepted by God. Now we know theologically from the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. That the only thing that was happening here was that God was seeing this gesture that these Israelites were doing. And on the basis of their faith, on the basis of the symbolism, he was granting them forgiveness on, by virtue of what Jesus would do in the future. You see, worship requires total commitment. But who here is totally committed? Put up your hand. Who here fails in their commitment? Aren't you glad that there was one who was totally committed? The Lord Jesus. And he, total, out of total commitment to God, he was the proper gift himself. He offered it in the proper place, the cross, with the proper presentation, pouring out his life for you and me so that we can now be forgiven and accepted before God by faith. This is the biggest scandal. And he died how many times? Once for all. There are no burnt offerings going on anymore. They were offered in the morning and the evening, but now the temple is destroyed. There's no burnt offerings going on anymore because Jesus paid it all. Isn't that good news? But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. In response to that grace, that amazing grace that sets us free, from the law and forgives us and brings us into union with God and relationship with God. In response to that, how should we live? Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I think now you have the theological understanding to interpret this verse a little bit better. See, this is why we study the Bible. 
Because getting Bible knowledge can increase our love for God as we see more in the Word. But look down in the Word. Look in the Word. This is awesome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that Jesus has offered this sacrifice once for all to forgive us of all sins and to cleanse us from all sins. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to firstly present your bodies. What is the proper sacrifice that we should bring in worship? Don't bring a bull next Sunday. Don't bring a sheep. Don't bring a goat. All right? Don't bring a turtle dove or a little bird. You can bring Winston. I didn't say it. But don't bring any of those things. What's the proper gift? It's you. It's you. That you give yourself back to God. You say, Lord Jesus, I know I'll do this imperfectly. But every day I want to surrender my life to you. And through the the power that you provide by your spirit, I want to live for you. Where is the proper place? By the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Where's the altar in this verse? There isn't one. Because the proper place where you are to present yourself is every moment of your life. You present yourself to God. You say, God, here I am. And then it says, holy and acceptable to God. The beautiful thing is that through the cross, the offering of ourselves to God is holy and acceptable. That's what he wants from us. It's for us to come back and give our lives to him. But the proper presentation is found in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. That the proper presentation for you now, Christian, is no longer to be conformed to this world, but allow God the Holy Spirit to transform you so that you will be able to live out God's will in your life. This is going to be a great, great few weeks as we study this together. Who's excited? I'm the only one, but, but I reckon you, some of you are. It's going to be fantastic as we see the beauty of Jesus spelt out on every page of Leviticus. Let's pray, shall we? Thanks for listening. Again, if you would like any information on the life at OBC, please check out our website, go to our Facebook page or download our app.